Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. If the healing of the man at the beautiful gate of the temple was the first miracle in the church, then the consequences that followed would well be called the first persecution of the church and would eventually lead to the death, the martyrdom of Stephen. So what I want to do for a few moments this evening is to simply look at this My title, my working title, if there is one, is You Will Be Hated. You will be. You will be hated. Jesus has already talked to his disciples about persecution. The disciples have spent three years in the Master's Seminary. They have been hearing the words of the Son of God. They've been taught in the very best Bible college ever. And Jesus has already spoken to them about this. In Mark chapter 13, verse 9 to verse 13, we read these words. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten. And ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither what ye do premeditate. And whatsoever shall be given to you in that hour that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. My brother shall betray the brother to death. And the father, the son, and the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. A very simple fact. If you're going to be a true, faithful follower of the Lord Jesus you will be hated by this world. I don't just mean you'll be slightly disliked. You'll be hated. I know that it sounds so much different from what's being presented in pulpits up and down the country today. From the modern version of Christianity, the easy-believe, recreational Christianity of evangelicalism, the emotional, heart-driven Christianity of the charismatic movement, the luxury Christianity of the prosperity teachers. It was, I think, uh, one of our more secular commentators on the media here, a man called Malachi O'Doherty, who once described modern Christianity as cappuccino Christianity. I'm sure he was right. All froth and sweetness and not much substance. If you're going to be a Christian, a true Christian, you will be hated by all men. Let's look at this incident. See the breadth of the hostility that was faced. I want you to see the amount of people that came. If you look at chapter 4, 
And verse 1, it says, As they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And then later on, whenever the kangaroo court is convened the next morning, we see that added to that is Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and the high priest's family and all those who are gathered in Jerusalem. Oh, what a, that's a huge posse of people who have come to arrest the disciples. Let's think for a minute or two of who all was in that posse. What was behind their arrest warrant? Well, there were the priests. And of course, there were thousands of priests, all scattered throughout the land, living in the rural towns and the villages. And they would serve in the temple on a rota. Some would serve maybe once or twice in their whole lifetime. And you'll remember the father of John the Baptist was one of those priests. But there were a regular cadre of priests who dwelt in Jerusalem. Men of the high priestly family and caste. People who lived in the city all year round. And that's probably whom Luke is referring to here. There was the captain of the temple guard. An extremely important and influential figure. A very powerful man. He would have been the man whose soldiers arrested Jesus on, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And who had delivered him up to the Romans for the official trial. And this captain of the temple guard, he maintained a kind of paramilitary organization. A kind of militia, like a police force. And with the tolerance of the Romans, it kept peace and order in Jerusalem. And so long as they didn't bother anybody who wasn't a Jew, the Romans were quite happy with that situation. Their troops could simply supervise and the captain of the the temple guard could do what he needed to do so long as they kept themselves to themselves and only policed their own people. It was kind of like, a bit like these people in the UK today who want to have their own Sharia law courts and the government say, well, so long as they're only doing it among themselves, doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. And these were like a police force. I suppose he was one of the most powerful people in Jerusalem at that time. There were the Sadducees, the upper classes, the people who were the great compromisers with Rome, the moneyed people, the people who, when they saw the Roman occupation beginning, cozied up to the occupiers and in the hope that they would maintain their lifestyle and their influence. And there were the elders waiting in the wings. These older men among the people. And they got together the next day along with the priests. And there were the scribes, the lawyers, who were never too far away. The learned friends and brethren who copied and interpreted the law they would be involved in any trial held under the laws of Judaism. And there was Annas and Caiaphas, the two high priests, one of them recognised as the high priest by the Jews, and the other recognised as the high priest by the Romans. And uh, both of them 
happily cooperating with each other. Um, acting together, they were certainly acting together at the trial of Jesus. There were people who are named here, John and Alexander, not the Apostle John, but members of the high priestly family. Family members of the high priest. There's a, a huge opposition, an enormous opposition. This was what Jesus meant and more when he told them that if they followed him, they would be very much less than popular. Now, what was their problem? All these people. Sure hadn't a man just been healed. They couldn't deny it. They could see him. They could see and hear the rejoicing of the crowds. What was their problem? What was getting them so agitated? Well, there's two reasons, really. And you see them in verse 2. They were grieved. And the first reason is that they taught the people. How dare they? How dare they teach the people? That wasn't their job. That wasn't the job of people, ordinary people, fishermen and tax collectors and people like that. That's the job of the scribes and the job of the lawyers and the job of the rabbis. It's not the job of a bunch of uneducated rabble. Jesus hadn't gone to their schools either. And they'd been certain to stop him from preaching. And yet, when you look down at verse 13, You see that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The word perceived there is interesting. They perceived this. It's all about perception. They looked at these unwashed disciples, these fishermen, and commoners and they said who do they think they are these are ignorant men they're unlearned men what are they doing teaching people they have no right to be doing that and yet they had to acknowledge that they had been with Jesus they had spent three years under the greatest teacher that ever walked on this earth Three years in the very presence of the Son of God, subjecting to the greatest theology lessons ever. The perception of the council on that day was that they were ignorant and unlearned. But yet they had to admit they have been with Jesus. They've learned from him. It's interesting, there was a a gentleman, I suppose that's hardly the word, who used to attend a church of which I was the pastor a number of years ago. He's very fond of this verse, quoted it quite often in his prayers. And he would get up and he would pray in the prayer meeting. He would say, Lord, it tells us in your word that the disciples were ignorant and unlearned men. Lord, we pray you'd make us ignorant too. And the Lord answered his prayer in a certain way. The disciples were teaching. How dare they? That's not their job. But look what they were teaching about. 
This would have aggravated the Sadducees. They preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So if the disciples testified that Jesus had risen, that really annoyed them and irked them and challenged their authority. And it was broader than that if they just stick to some general belief that someday maybe there'd be some kind of a general resurrection in the last day. That might not have been too much controversial, because after all, that's what the Pharisees believed. But they're being more specific than that. They're saying that Jesus has risen from the dead. They're preaching about Jesus. One of the greatest offences that the world takes today is when we preach about Jesus. We preach about Christ. When we preach about his resurrection. Is it any wonder that liberal clergymen seeking to curry favour with the world that they will downplay or downright deny the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ, the coming of the King of Kings, all of those things will be done away with in the attempt to placate the hostility of the world. But then the Jews didn't have Jesus' body. Wouldn't it have been great for them if they could just simply have said, well, we know Jesus didn't rise from the dead because we have his body, and or else we know where it is, but they couldn't do that because he was risen. There were eyewitnesses. These events were only happening a matter of weeks after the resurrection, and it would have been easy if there had been no resurrection. It would have been easy for anyone among this hostile group of, of persecutors. It would have been easy for any of them to stand up and say, Jesus is not risen, folks, because we know where the body is. But they couldn't have done that. For the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection were still available at that time. So the foundation of their hostility is first of all that these apostles were teaching people without their authority. And they're teaching people about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now you can see how that would apply to us. How dare we preach and teach people the things that this world does not accept any longer as true. The thought police get really agitated when Christians talk about Christian ethics. When Christians preach about the biblical standards of morality. When Christians proclaim that marriage is between one man and one woman and that it's a lifelong monogamous commitment, they get aggravated. How dare you teach people? What's your authority for doing this? And how dare you give say that you derive that authority from Christ? They hate you for it. And look at the ferocity of their hostility. We've seen the breadth of it. 
We've seen the foundation of it. Look at the ferocity of it. Look at this in verse 3. In verse 1, rather, it says that they came upon them. Now, that doesn't mean to say they found them. That they just happened to be walking through the street. Oh, look, there's some disciples preaching over there. That's not how they came upon them. There's force in these words. They came upon them. They jumped upon them. And in verse 3, and they laid hands on them. They didn't just go up and say, excuse me, you're under arrest. Would you come with me? The way the police were nowadays. They laid hands on them. And then on the next morning after a night in prison, in verse 7, they set them in the midst. I want you to think what this is like. Peter and John are now surrounded by hostile interrogators. They've been set in the midst. Those angry enemies who surrounded them were baying for their blood. They'd put Jesus to death. Very shortly they will martyr Stephen. They have the power of life or death over them. They are furious with them. And Peter and John are in a deadly position. I wondered how best to illustrate this and to try to get over to you the ferocity of what these two men were facing, their hatred, the hatred that the crowd had for them. And they're right in the very midst of them. And right away when I was thinking of this, I was reminded of an incident that occurred in Belfast on the 19th of March, 1988. That day there was a funeral taking place in West Belfast. It was the funeral of a man called Kevin Brady, one of the Gibraltar bombers. And somehow or another, two army corporals strayed into the midst of the funeral. We don't know how and we don't know why and we never will. It may be that he just simply got lost. One of them, after all, had only been here for a week. But that day, they were surrounded by hordes of screaming mourners. Surrounding their car, attacking their car, one of the soldiers pulled his service pistol and fired a shot in the air. But that simply enraged them more. It didn't encourage them to go away. And the soldiers were dragged from the car and they were badly beaten and they were taken to Casement Park, a sports ground, where they were beaten and stripped and driven then to nearby waste ground where they were shot dead. I don't know what it must have been like to be in that situation. Surrounded by a hostile mob. One eyewitness who was there later said that he had sat down between the two soldiers and called people to call an ambulance. I put my arm around one and I was holding the other by the shoulder. They were so disciplined, they just lay there to 
totally still. What would you have done? What would I have done? I don't want to exaggerate things. I can't imagine the fear in their minds and in their hearts as that incident occurred. And yet it's not an exaggeration to say that as those early disciples stood in the midst that day, they would have suffered an equally brutal death. As Stephen did, not long afterwards. Those Jewish authorities, the captain of the guard, they were ready to do the apostles to death. They'd already rid themselves, they thought, of Jesus, the troublesome leader of this group. And the only reason why they ever are released is because of the fear of the people outside that there might be a riot. And if there was a riot, the Romans would intervene and they would all suffer. Now here's the challenge. Am I ready for that? Are you? See, it's never easy to be a Christian. Not in the book of Acts, no less so today. People still hate Christ. And they hate his church. And they hate his word. And they hate his followers. And if you're going to stand up loudly and oppose the prevailing culture, you will be hated by all men. Jesus said so. If you're going to live a consistent Christian life, if you're going to follow in the way of Christ, if you're going to apply the word of God to your standards of ethics and behavior, you will be a cultural reject, an outcast. And the culture will despise you for it. So finally, what did they do? See, what most of us would do under that kind of threat would be we would back down, wouldn't we? The easiest thing for Peter and John would have been to say, look, sorry folks, this is all a big mistake. You know, I mean, yeah, we, we did help that man outside, but look, let's, let's calm down here and um, we won't do it again. That's what some clergymen would do. Try to compromise. Let's reach some kind of an agreement. Let's reach some kind of a, an accommodation here so we can all get along together. What did Peter do? He stood up in the midst of that hostile band of people and he accused them of the death of the Saviour. Verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom ye crucified whom God raised from the dead. Talk about aggravating them. The end of the day that's why they were there because they were preaching about Jesus and the resurrection and yet in the midst of the hostile crowd Peter stands up and he boldly proclaims Jesus is dead and he is risen again and he lives and it was you who crucified him and it is you who have become guilty before God and he gives them this stern warning. In verse 12, 
Neither is there salvation in any other. Not in you. Not in your teachings. Not in your ways. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They wouldn't have liked that. You see, this is all about the preaching of the law here. There's a direct accusation of complicity in the death of Jesus, a crime, a dreadful sin. Peter doesn't hide their sin from them. He declares that they are sinners. And he tells them that there's only one way to heaven. And they hate that in the world. This claim of Christianity. How intolerant are Christians? Can't you hear them? Uh, You know, the howls of indignation from ungodly people. Are you saying that my religion is of less value than yours? Are you saying that I can't reach God my way on my own? If you worship Jesus, that's all right for you. Are you saying that what's right for you is not what's right for me? I prefer Judaism. I prefer Mohammed. I prefer Hinduism. Practice your religion and I'll practice mine. And somehow we'll all get along to the same place. And Peter stands up and says in the midst of them, No, it's not true. There's only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus Christ. After all, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. And yet, he introduces grace. We must be saved. There's an opportunity for them to be saved, be rescued from their sins. A state that we can't achieve on our own. We need grace and it's found nowhere else but in Jesus. So encompassed with this great intimidation. When angry men with the ability to put them to a cruel death are surrounding them. When the anger is palpable. When they are baying for their blood. When they're looking at them with murder in their eyes and their hearts. When any common man would have backed down and kept quiet and said nothing. Peter stands up and he fearlessly and boldly takes an uncompromising stand for Christ. Is it any wonder that they saw the boldness of Peter and John? And although they thought and they perceived that they were in their terms ignorant and unlearned, have been with Jesus and when you've been with Jesus you've learnt from his word and you're living daily crucifying yourself walking with the Lord and you find that the world hates you the reaction of the believer is to say, I fear not what man will do, for I must obey God rather than man.